Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. Please welcome author of a book of short stories called Emerald City. Also wrote a novel set here in San Francisco and in Europe called Invisible Circus. She's written for the New Yorker magazine, Elle, GQ, Mademoiselle. I don't know if people or anything, but uh, generally the high-tone literary publications. Will you please welcome an author who grew up here in San Francisco and now lives in New York City, Jennifer Egan, to West Coast Live. Jennifer Egan is uh, also currently known for the letters that are showing up in the New York Times Magazine in response to a profile that she wrote of a 16-year-old model, A Model's Life, that appeared in the February 4th issue. And it's generated, what, as much mail as any piece probably has ever run in that magazine. It seems that a lot of people did respond to it. I actually haven't seen any of the letters yet because I haven't been in a place where I could get a New York Times the last couple of weekends, but I've been hearing that they've, uh, they've gotten a lot of response. A lot of the letters seem to be about smoking, which is sort of interesting. At least that's what I've heard. People objecting to pictures of young girls smoking cigarettes, which in a way seems like sort of the least of the problem, but... <laughs> uh, uh, some of the short stories in, in your collection deal with the life of, of models. Uh, and, and deal with that sort of world of, of New York City. And presumably this is one reason you were sought out or assigned to do an actual piece on a model's life. Well, I think that they, yes, that was, uh, two of the stories do involve the, the fashion world, which has always sort of fascinated me as, uh, as, as the machine that creates these powerful images that I think influence a lot of us, particularly um, young girls. And, uh, and also the Times wanted a fiction writer because they were very interested in having someone approach this industry from the point of view of telling people's stories as they unfolded rather than a kind of um, hard-nosed reporting, sort of muckraking um, you know, attitude. Because in a way, it's, it's, it's the kind of industry that's sort of easy to, uh, to criticize, but I think harder to, to make human, and I think that's what they really wanted. One of the reactions to the piece is that instead of uh, creating a, showing an industry that's human, that it's actually dehumanizing young girls who don't seem to have much of a chance to develop as persons. I don't know if it's dehumanizing them. I think that it's, it is, to some degree, possibly short-circuiting their development because I think it allows them to, to have this dream come true. I mean, I think as adolescents, you know, often we long to be adults and get over that difficult, kind of painful period of peer pressure and, and all of that stuff. And I think modeling offers this strange um, solution to that in which young girls seem to be adult women overnight. I mean, they look at you know, physically, and, and they're treated as such. And I think that's, that can be sort of difficult. Um, I think that, you know, the effect of it is very hard to gauge as it's happening. I think these girls will only know when they look back um, how, how their, their very early and, and in some ways precocious careers um, have affected their development as people. What, what was your inspiration to become a, a writer? I and mean, there's some, you know, out of all the possible professions you could have chosen for yourself. Well, I think that, uh, ironically enough, I, had, I took a year off between high school and college, and I was definitely, you know, sort of a, a troubled, bouncing-off-the-walls sort of adolescent, and I was dying to travel around the world. Um, and I initially thought that I would do so as an archaeologist's assistant. Um, and, I was, and so I wrote to lots of archaeologists offering my services. 
and, uh, and uh, hoping, of course, that they would take me to Greece and, and uh, you know, Egypt and pay me to help them dig up these remains. And needless to say, I did not get a lot of response to that um, with my high school diploma in hand. So I ended up actually having a brief stint as a model myself in my desperate effort to earn money and see the world. And I felt so, so deeply alienated um, in that world and so filled with a sense that if, if it was possible to do the opposite of what I was doing with my life, I wanted to do it, namely to be invisible and to talk. And I think writing is, is basically the answer to that. <laughs> you're, you're generally invisible, the present moment accepted, and, and you are ta you're talking. I mean, you're, it's, it is literally the opposite. And that only came to me recently, that um, somehow my life ended up doing, you know, over many years, sort of a 180 degree um, turn from, from where I started, from my first job. What was your first modeling job? Oh, I just, you know, I was basically, I mean, I wasn't on the level at all of these girls that I'm writing about, but I, w I worked here in San Francisco. I was in Macy's ads and Emporium ads and things like that. And then as soon as I had, you know, a couple thousand bucks, which in those days was enough to get you through Europe for several months, <laughs> the dollar was a lot stronger. Um, as soon as I had that, I got my backpack and began wandering around. The, uh, the idea of seeing the world is, is one of the themes of one of the short stories, uh, that, that there's a model who wants to be able to see the world. Uh, but there's also a character in the story who wants more than anything else to be able to prove that she has some sort of intellectual substance to the other models. There's this conflict between the, the vacuousness of how she's perceived and how she wants to be perceived. Right. Well, I think that that's, I think a lot of models do feel that because I think there's a strange sense of being at the absolute center of attention and, um, and the focus visually and, and even more than that of a great many people and yet in some strange way being totally irrelevant. And I think models do grapple with that feeling. And I, I felt that at doing, researching this piece over the last several months. You know, there's this, these girls do have a lot of power in a certain way. Everyone's looking at them. And in, in our culture, that really means something. But at the same time, there's a sense that no one expects them to say anything that will be interesting. And I think that has a strangely, it's uplifting and demoralizing in the very same moment. And so I think that there is an often a, a desire to prove themselves intellectually, to, to sort of, to mean more than just, you know, something to look at. Your books have a theme that, that runs through of dislocation. Uh, there was a very disturbing, unsettling story about uh, somebody who's escaping what may be financial trouble in San Francisco and encounters perhaps the source of it, if not himself. Uh, in China, um, your novel, The Invisible Circus, is about a young girl who's missed the 60s by a decade or so and is constantly trying to find out what it was she missed and is longing for an era, an era of life. This uh, sort of trapped between places, uh, the model who's on the, the coast of Africa and longs to be back home in Illinois. And why do I do this, is your question. No, that wasn't my question. I was just, I was just uh, making an observation and wondering uh, does writing resolve any of that dislocation for yourself? Well, I think that, I mean, one thing that, nostalgia has always interested me a lot, and I think one reason is that my whole family is from the Midwest, and I moved with my mother and my stepfather to San Francisco when I was about seven, and it was such a completely different world, especially in 1969, which is when we got here. Um, and I think that, so I think that nostalgia was sort of bu built into my worldview from a very young age. I was always aware that I had come from a place that looked different and felt different, and I had moved to this new place that was, that, and I think it kept me at a slight remove from both of them. 
them in a funny way. So I'm always fascinated by the the worlds people imagine versus the worlds that surround them, um, and and sort of the I think that you know the contrast between imagination and and the grittiness and sometimes the boredom and the numbness of everyday life is sort of fascinating and very human. And one reason that I set a lot of my stories in foreign countries is that I think often when people are di physically dislocated from the, the the rituals and the habits of their everyday lives, they will often make that lunge for the fantasy life or the imaginary other life that they they think that maybe they could have led. Whether it's in the past or elsewhere, but anywhere but the moment. Exactly. I mean, yeah, I think nostalgia is, is just another version of that. Some people fantasize about the future, but it's amazing what happens when everyday experience is filtered through the imagination. It becomes this sort of glorious, otherworldly, sensual memory, and that's what nostalgia is. I was also struck by the root of nostalgia, which is the pain of remembering. Uh, you know, the, as in neuralgia, it's nostalgia that there's pain that goes with that memory. I agree, and one thing I've found so interesting is that often painful, me everyone says, oh, you remember the good things and you forget the bad things. I think I'm the opposite, and maybe that's just my perverse nature, but I mean, for example, I've done, you know, I've done quite a bit of traveling, and that's where I've gotten a lot of this material to use in my stories, and I did have a, a hellish trip through China for about five weeks. I went with a friend. She didn't like it, so she left, so I was stuck there alone. I'd spent too much money on the plane ticket to possibly cut this trip short, so I sort of drifted drearily through China with my backpack, feeling absolutely miserable, and I can't forget that trip. It, it has this tremendous pull for me because it's a melancholic memory, and so I think there's a very close link between nostalgia and pain, personally. Well, that's a, so if, if somebody has, a, so vacations don't necessarily have a pleasant meanings. I mean, it, well, I'm not saying, you know, you want to go have a lousy vacation so you can think of it nostalgically. I'm not sure it's quite worth that. <laughs> I mean, I'm all for the, you know, the... It nice actually gives an idea for a new sort of tour company. Exactly. <laughs> On unpleasant oriental holidays, you know. I think a lot of existing tour companies could easily market themselves that way, actually. But, um, no, I'm, I guess, it, you know, this is the nice silver lining about, about being a writer. No matter how lousy your experience, you can always say, well, gee, maybe this will end up being good material. And in my case, the lousier the experience, the better the material. <laughs> I'd like to hear a, a bit from one of your uh, short stories in your, in your new collection. Uh, I'd picked a spot, but I understand you picked one also? Well, uh, yeah, I did, but yours is a bit longer, so maybe I should go for that. Yours is about New York, mine is about San Francisco. Well, let's go for the, the New York one. Uh, you, uh, you live there now? I live there. I've lived there for about nine years. And uh, uh, this, is, this, is, uh, this is from a story where a photographer's assistant is meeting with a friend of his who is also a model, and he works as a photographer assistant for somebody who's uh, regularly taking pictures of all the top-notch models of New York. This is this story is called Emerald City, um, and I, I, be, I it's not I don't think it's really the representative story in the collection, but I used the title because I thought it perfectly captured that sense of this glittering other world that sometimes seems to offer an alternative to everyday life. And I think often people who go to New York, and myself included, are in some way hoping they will find that glittery world. I think New York really is sort of the the, the Emerald City of America right now. Um, and in both, in all of its good ways and bad ways. So, okay. He took the subway uptown to visit Stacy, a failing model whom he adored against all reason. Stacy, when girls with names like Zane and Anushka and Brige regularly slipped him their phone numbers during shoots. Stacy refused to change her name. If I make it, she said, they'll be happy to call me whatever. 
She never acknowledged that she was failing, though it was obvious. Rory longed to bring it up, to talk it over with her, but he was afraid to. Stacy lay on her bed, shoes still on. A Diet Coke was on the table beside her. She weighed herself each morning, and when she was under 120, she allowed herself a real Coke that day. What happened at Bazaar? Rory asked, perching on the edge of the bed. Stacy sat up and smoothed her hair. The usual, she said. I'm too commercial. She shrugged, but Rory could see she was troubled. And that was nothing, Stacy continued. On my next go-see, the guy kept looking at me and flipping back and forth through my book, and of course I'm thinking, fantastic, he's going to hire me. So you know what he finally says? I'm not ugly enough. He says, beauty today, today is ugly beauty. Look at those girls, they're monsters. Gorgeous, mythical monsters. If a girl isn't ugly, I won't use her. She turned to Rory. He saw tears in her eyes and felt helpless. What a bastard, he said. To his surprise, she began to laugh. She lay back on the bed and let the laughter shake her. I mean, here I am, she said, killing myself to stay thin, hot oiling my hair, getting my nails done. And what does he tell me? I'm not ugly enough. It's crazy, Rory said, watching Stacy uneasily. He's out of his mind. She sat up and rubbed her eyes. She looked slap happy, the way she looked sometimes after a second gin and tonic. Eight months before, after a year's meticulous planning, she had bought her own ticket to New York from Cincinnati. And this was just the beginning. Stacy hoped to ride the wave of her success around the world. Paris, Tokyo, London, Bangkok. The shelves of her tiny apartment were cluttered with maps and travel books. And whenever she met a foreigner, it made no difference from where, she would carefully copy his address into a small leather-bound book, convinced it would not be long before she was everywhere. She was the sort of girl for whom nothing happened by accident, and it pained Rory to watch her struggle when all day in Vesuvi's studio he saw girls whose lives were accident upon accident, from their discovery in whatever shopping mall or hot dog stand to the startling, gaudy error of their faces. Rory, Stacy said, look at me a minute. He turned obediently. She was so close he could smell the warm, milky lotion she used on her face. Do you ever wish I was uglier, she asked. God, no, Rory said, pulling away to see if she was joking. What a question, Stace. Come on, you do this all day long. She moved close to him again, and Rory found himself looking at the tiny pores on either side of her nose. He tried to think of the studio and the girls there, but when he concentrated on Stacy, they disappeared, and when he thought of the studio, he couldn't see Stacy anymore. It was a world she didn't belong to. As he watched Stacy's tense, expectant face, Rory felt a dreadful power. It would take so little, he thought, to crush her. Never mind, she said, when Rory didn't answer. I don't want to know. Jennifer Egan reading from Emerald City, Emerald City collection of her stories. What is hot oiling your hair? It's, um, it's putting a lot of grease on your hair and heating it so that ideally the hair absorbs the grease. Uh, and the downside is your, your hair is greasy for about <laughs> for several days thereafter, at least the few times I've tried it. And, and the benefit is what? Is that your hair becomes moister, so they say. And that's, uh, well, survives under hot lights and so on and so forth. I guess so. It sounded good. <laughs> you mentioned earlier that you, you wanted to, to write because you wanted to be able to talk and not be seen. I'm always interested in, in the, the function of authors' photographs on book jackets. Well, and why, you're, you're, why, why you chose to have a picture on the book jacket. 
Well, it's, I mean, it, it's one of those things that you'd have a hell of a time convincing your publisher not to let you put a picture on at all. And you'll notice there are very few books um, that in hardback at least don't have a picture. And I have to admit that I think it's precisely because it's such an invisible art. I mean, you don't see the author and you don't hear the author that you're sort of fascinated to know what the author looks like. I mean, I'm, I immediately look inside the flap to see, just to get some kind of physical and visual context for these words, which all look the same. It doesn't matter who's writing them. So I think that's, that's the function. I think, too, it, you know, particularly in our culture, I mean, we're tremendously visual. We're dying to know what people look like. And this is publishing's sort of nod to that, I guess. Jennifer Egan, and uh, her novel is called Invisible Circus. And the short stories are published by Doubleday, as is the novel. And uh, we look forward to more letters about your piece, Objecting to the Model's Way of Life, showing up in the next New York Times letters to the editor section. Thank you very much for being here on West Coast Live. Thank you. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.